Welcome to Better Worlds, where we explore how Web 3.0 connects our natural, manufactured, and virtual realities to create better lives for all in a more equitable and sustainable way. Welcome to Better Worlds. We're delighted today to have Frederick van Ders with us, who is here to share about green innovation technology and decarbonizing the health sector. Welcome, Fred. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, really exciting. It's, uh, it's what I live and breathe to do. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm glad to, uh, to be here and share my thoughts. Yeah, Frederick is based in Denmark and has worked for the last eight years on promoting green tech companies and is currently the CEO of the Green Innovation Group. Um, do you want to share just a little bit of on the on the get go about the Green Innovation Group and and kind of set the context here for us? Yeah, so basically, uh, Green Innovation Group is a boutique management consulting firm. So uh, we only work on projects that we believe can help decarbonize the healthcare sector. So we work with primarily pharma clients, medtech clients, and the healthcare sector at large. So sometimes more public-oriented actors, sometimes insurance companies, because they have a lot of interests in the space. But basically what we work on is typically three kinds of projects. So we have organizations that have an idea or a goal that they want to be more sustainable. Then we can help them uh, formulate and deploy their sustainability strategy. Then we have companies that already have a sustainability strategy, but then, you know, when the strategy hits the wall of reality, nothing happens and they have what we call the execution gap. So there we can help with the execution or the implementation of, uh, of the strategy. And then last but not least, we have the capacity building or the training element where maybe they do know how to put the implementation and integration into process, but they just find that there's a capacity gap. So, the staff may or may not have the sufficient knowledge about circular economy in order to start integrating that into the industrial processes. And then we, we can be the ones helping or designing the, um, the educational programs that will sort of um, facilitate the capacity building and upskill the workforce for, uh, for decarbonization. So, so that's sort of the, the gist of it. We're based out of Copenhagen, but we operate globally. Um, our main clients are in uh, Denmark and the US. Mm. This is very interesting. I, I, I'll, I'll park this for a little later in the conversation, bringing circular economics into those executive kind of um, spheres. But, but I know you also are on the board of the Green Cubator and a managing partner of the Green Tech Challenge. Do you, do you care to, to share about both of those as well? <clears throat> So the, the Green Tech Challenge is what Green Innovation Group was called uh, earlier. Um, we started out running these innovation programs where we would do um, innovation accelerators across uh, 12 different countries. So we ran more than 30 accelerators, uh, reviewing more than 12,000 different green startup business cases. Today, we uh, we've basically the, the, the short version of the story is that we... We opened the company with a theory of change that there was not enough green innovation in the world to facilitate the green transition. Then we started working with green startups in order to help them succeed. So we would pair them up with lawyers, with accountants, with investors, with, you know, giving them the tools to succeed. Then we just learned uh, through the years that 
In reality, we do have the green innovation we need. The green transition is not about new inventions at all. We, we have sufficient technologies. We've had them for a very long time. So the um, Green Tech Challenge became Green Innovation Group, where we figured we, we need to do a pivot here and focus our advisory services to where it matters the most. So we need to address the major industrial muscle that has the decision-making power to actually facilitate change and uh, sort of uh, reroute investments into existing green technologies. It, we, we basically learned that it's not so much about forming new companies, even though it's, it's a very popular thought that we need to build a startup to do something. Um, but uh, as, uh, as some of my uh, students have sometimes baptized me the killer of dreams, because I'm often sort of pulled in to talk about innovation and then people think innovation equals startups. And at the end of the day, startups are not going to save the world. Um, but uh, but green technology is, is strictly necessary. And that's, that's what we see from when we're looking at the UN Climate Council and the IPCC reports that come out. Those, those are basically the reason for, for climate, skeptic, uh, climate pessimism. Um, we, we can see that we actually have the technology needed. Uh, and we do have proven traction in business models that can uh, fully support uh, the global society staying well below 1.5 degrees Celsius global temperature rise. However, those investments are not made. So it's not about uh, a lacking innovation uh, that can save the world all of a sudden. That It's never been the problem. It's about investing where it actually matters and where, where it's feasible to drive that change. So that's why we pivoted from Green Tech Challenge to what we call Green, Green Innovation Group today. Uh, then I've been involved in, in various boards. Um, uh, Green Incubator is uh, an office space in, in Copenhagen where green entrepreneurs can sort of foster their ideas and make them grow. Uh, I've also been in the board of the Sustainable Changemakers where uh, youth that work, <clears throat> pardon, youth that work on the sustainability agenda can exchange uh, ideas and spar on challenges in their work life. So this, this kind of catered more to the corporate side of things, more to the people that are working in the public sector, but are experiencing a lot of the challenges that comes from engaging with the sustainability agenda. So it's a really interesting theme and I'm uh, kind of came un unexpected because we we haven't called it Green Tech Challenge for years. So I think it, uh, you must have digged that up on LinkedIn uh, or, or somewhere where um, it hasn't been sort of, I haven't had time to, to reformulate things properly. But uh, I think it's a really important reflection sort of also in my own journey in sustainability that I started working in sustainability 15 years ago. So I've been in this space for a very long time. So uh, CSR was sort of an emerging thing when, when I started working in NGOs and working on fundraising campaigns. Um, I started out working in an NGO called Oxfam, or in Denmark it's called Ibis, now it's called Ibis Oxfam, but internationally uh, better known as Oxfam. And um, one of the things I saw there was that there's a very uh, strong tendency that those efforts are hero driven. So you see individual, incredibly passionate people that are carrying more than they're supposed to be able to and 
and thus kind of willing change through just running much faster than it should be humanly possible. And the result of that work is typically unbelievable results on the short term, but in the long term, it's almost always burnout. And, you know, so working in, in that industry, you know, that, that was kind of the reflection that I left that industry with because I could see, okay, either I'm going to be the one burning out or I'm going to have to leave because I'm running much faster than I'm supposed to here. Uh, and then uh, I switched to working in the music industry where it's very much the same thing that uh, <laughs> people are kind of... Um, approaching things and and it feels a lot like it's success in music comes uh, to those who are what we call talented uh, but there's very little um, realism in how much hard work it actually takes to become a successful musician I, I ran an analog music studio for for four years um, and one of one of the sort of groups that were in that studio ended up being a nominee for a Grammy. So it, it went quite well, that studio. Um, but I just didn't really, it, it wasn't me. I, I liked business and not the music industry. Um, but uh, I heard a really interesting Ed Sheeran quote where um, <clears throat> he's, he's uh, apparently been saying that what you need to do to become a successful songwriter is to show up for work every day and write one song per day. And then at the end of the year, you'll have 365 songs. And you know what? Five of them are probably going to be good. So it's kind of like this idea of showing up and putting in the work rather than sort of sprinting every day. So, so you, that, that has kind of become part of my mantra now in sustainability and in Green Innovation Group is that we need to help our clients build systems rather than building heroes. Yeah, yeah. Let me... Let me chime in there because what what you're sharing is super interesting fred that you know at the at the core of all the change that's needed um for the sake of the environment for the sake of the well-being of the environment there's also at the start it's like a logical conclusion is the well-being of the humans that are driving it and more of like a holistic approach that allows us to actually honor what it what it means to be human, right? Which which is a lot to do with health. And that's why I think personally for me, that's where I moved on from the term sustainability into the term regeneration, because we need to be able to actually generate and and connect to those natural principles. Um what's your learning now that you know you're 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 consulting and, and advising people that are driving those changes is do you, do you feel like this is changing slowly or do you think burnout is still and the, the hero culture is still like predominantly uh, what's out there culture is it's unbeatable in in western society because if if you think of many, many of our clients i'm really glad that you say we we help people because that's the essence of what we do there there's always a person in the other end we're not in that way, in that sense of the word, we're not helping the organization, even though it's the organization fronting the bill. But it's very important to us that it's always human-centered. Most transformation, most strategy projects, they fail because they fail to have the human in the center of things. And then they're surprised that the strategy report is not implemented on the floor, but you know they never ask the employees what their everyday looks look looks like. And then you know I, I feel like it's it's very. Uh, unfair to expect that that will ever happen so 
I, I do see a drive for systemic change and I do see a direction where the group of passionates that I would kind of, <laughs> in Denmark, we call them, call them uh, uh, natural uh, uh, Taliban, um, which is sort of like the eco hippie, the eco warrior approach where um, there's, uh, that's kind of the old school uh, sustainability passionates, right? And, and I feel that there's, there's a very rapid shift going on right now where the more businessy type of persona is starting to get it, you know, uh, understand that this is quite serious. It's not some woo-woo uh, drum circle stuff. You know, th this is uh, important even even if you've never done LSD, sustainability is still pretty much uh, something that should be on the on the agenda. And I like I like that you're saying that. I personally like you know drum circles, but um, you know at the same time you're right. Like this is not a fringe phenomena anymore. We are. Uh, realizing as a species that the systems that are running our planet or the, the systems we've created that run our economy are ruining not just environments and biospheres, but ultimately our own health. And therefore it is, you know, in the next decades ahead of us, this is going to be on the plate of every business person and on the plate of every young person who's, yeah. who's thriving to become someone, someone better. And that, that that's where, what I find really, really interesting in it is that you know, when, when we started Green Innovation Group in 2015, the sustainability department in a corporate setting would usually be uh, Karina writing up a CSR report every year. But having no budget, having no mandate for change, having no influence in the hierarchy, um, having no staff, um, where today we see entire sustainability departments, we're seeing chief sustainability officers. We're also seeing uh, chief uh, CEOs of, uh, of, of the biggest companies in the world going out and, and naming sustainability as a top three priority. Um, the interesting thing is that when, when they're listing their top three priorities, it's something like digitalization. You'll usually find that in, in a top three priority of any uh, exec. Then we have sustainability as something that's coming in. And then we will probably post COVID, we'll have resilience um, coming in as, as a third priority or something like that, right? But if you look at the number of full-time employees that are dedicated to each of these agendas, you, you see a really sad picture of how it's actually prioritized. So it's being sort of uh, positioned and portrayed as a must-win battle but no one is actually allocating the time and money to make the investment to actually drive the change. Um, but but I, I do see, I mean, if, if I'm just going to scroll back to sort of, you, you're asking me a couple of things. One, moving on from sustainability towards regeneration. Uh, I, I think that's very, that resonates a lot with me as well, especially sort of philosophically speaking. Um, the uh, the challenge I think is that the the words are ascribed a certain meaning, and that is something I've I've called it the 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 arms race of words, where we've had for a while it's been net zero or it's been carbon positive or it's been sustainable or it's been in the realm of the sustainable development goals it, you know there's been a bunch of different approaches and i feel like regeneration is 
sort of up and coming, but it's also something that has been so up for definition that um, it's not as heavily scrutinized and that opens uh, a, a wall for, uh, or, or a door for a more washy element to it. So you can have greenwashing, you can have SDG washing. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of regeneration washing in the next five years because it's sort of an emerging term that people don't know what it's supposed to mean. And then you could see a large factory farm producer uh, going out and saying this is regeneratively produced meat because it's not a protective term. And then, you know, these claims could be made uh, left, right and center. Mm. Where this is, um, this is quite interesting what you're saying, because we've seen this, as you said, with CSR, corporate social responsibility. We've seen that with sustainability. We're already seeing it a little bit with regeneration. I think the biggest difference uh, with regeneration is that it is in itself a principle of the biology of the biological world around us and the biological world within us right yeah, 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 no. and rather than like an add-on to the economic systems but i want to come back to something very specific here fred just just to to get you know the the most out of this time with you here so you mentioned circular economics earlier and i'm i'm aware that you know your organization has published a, a variety of white papers and business cases um specifically for the healthcare sector so maybe we can take that as an example to um, you know, what, what is, what is, what are some of those use cases to creating a, a, you know, a more circular economy specifically for healthcare, um, kind of, you know, I'm, I'm saying here that circular economics might be one of those principles of a regenerative, uh, society. Yeah. I think it, uh, the circular economy is a really, uh, strong framework because it, it kind of does what it says in the tin, right? It, it's an economy that's not linear, it's circular. Wow. Okay. Then, um, so, so, so I like, I really like the term and uh, the Ellen MacArthur foundation has put in some really solid work in defining the circular economic, uh, principles and, uh, Ms. Rathward, uh, or Mrs. I'm not sure how that that's actually titled properly in, in English, uh, has, uh, has written about the donut economy. That's sort of like a little bit more of a pragmatic approach to circular economy from, from a local government standpoint that has been implemented in, in Amsterdam, the, the capital of the Netherlands. Um, so, so, you know, the circular economy, I think has that sort of economic appeal to the uh, legislators, to, uh, politicians, to, um, corporate uh, board of managers and board of directors. So, so from that sort of viewpoint, I think it's a really strong framework uh, to enter the fray with. And, and at the same time, it's also showing that it's quite evident that you cannot just extract resources that are in their nature quite limited to a larger degree than the Earth's reproduction capacity for generating these uh, resources, right? And then expect them to stay there. So it's, it's just, yeah. it's poor household economy, if you can say it like that. Um, and then uh, a different element that I really like about the circular economy is that it's kind of, it's putting value first. So if you're really abiding, I don't know if you can sort of visualize the Ellen MacArthur double butterfly diagram that goes out, spins out, right? And on the one side, you have the energy side of things where of course it should be renewable energy. So you're not, if you're dependent on fossil resources, you're going to run out eventually. Um, so it's putting an emphasis on, uh, on renewable energy, but on the material side of things, um, 
it's it's also showcasing the hierarchy of material use. So the inner circle, the most noble value creation you can have in a circular economy is, is actually a value that is uh, either purely intellectual or digital. So, um, so in its essence, when you can create value independently of material use, you're as close as you can get to the inner circle. Then <clears throat> if you are relying on recycled materials that you're deriving value from, then you're in the most extreme extremity of the circle, right? And then you're moving closer and closer to the inner circle, the closer you get to sort of as a service uh, sharing economy models, or um, you could say a reuse of clothing, uh, clothing uh, models or uh, refurbishment of used electronics, you know, all of these things, then it, it, the, the model is just really sound for showing the closer you are to the inner circle, the more value you're deriving per material unit spent. Of course, absolutely. That would be a good one for plastic, right? Like there's no need to continue to create more uh, little pieces of rubbish that, you know, are used for 10 seconds and thrown away because we have so much of that raw material that we've already created. So why not continue to reissue, refurbish, reuse, recycle in that sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so uh, now you asked about the concrete business cases for the healthcare sector. So I just thought like a circular economy would be good. Um, then again, if we say, what is the close, the, the global healthcare sector is emitting, depending on who you ask, but some estimates say four to 6% of all global emissions are associated to healthcare. Um, the, the methods for coming up with that number have been scrutinized and put in doubt, but I don't think the, the number is too far off when we look at GDP. And if we think GDP spent is a fair reflection of carbon emissions, then there's no reason to believe that it, it should be lower than that, actually. So let's just say that it's around 4 to 6% on a global level. Um, and basically what's emitting from the healthcare sector is, of course, uh, energy use, like, like anywhere else. It's transportation, it's some of the usual suspects. But then it's also um, single-use devices. Um, it's uh, drug production as well. Uh, and then waste where it's an incredibly wasteful industry. So most of the time when drugs and devices are purchased by a hospital, they enter Narnia and uh, no one knows where they go, when they're disposed of, how many of them are wasted, how many of them are actually put to use. Um, because the way it works is typically at in an operation theater, you will just need your surgical equipment to be there and you need to have one of everything. And if there isn't, you order a new one. So that's sort of the ordering side of things. In the procurement side of things, you're ordering everything according to price. So a single use will always be the cheaper one in unit economics. <clears throat> but you're not looking at the lifetime cost. You're not looking at the total cost of ownership. You're not looking at the life cycle assessment for the carbon emissions associated to the item. So it's, it's really a quite faulty economic analysis that's taking place. And there's a huge knowledge gap as to where these devices and drugs actually go um so uh so that that's sort of one side of it uh, the other side of it is that um every time we have a patient we spend money and we spend carbon 
on that patient. So the, the best patient we can have is the one that never needs the service, right? So prevention and preventive health healthcare is actually the biggest sort of opportunity to go to the inner circle of the circular economy. So can we actually be able to deliver a preventive service that is independent of material consumption, but can be delivered through telemedicine, for instance? Can we, um, can we, uh, can we advise people to, to do some of the habitual changes that we know are associated with, with better health outcomes? For instance, to not smoke. I mean, uh, it, it seems a little bit bonkers that we are allowing smoke. But then again, in some economic models that, that states are deploying, a patient that, that is a smoker is actually good for the economy because they die really fast. That's another one of those phenomena, right? That we, we, we don't, just like with the natural environment, we don't always account true cost, right? A, yeah. a tree yeah, is a true, thing true. in a spreadsheet. But then humans are a thing in a spreadsheet as well, where it's like, this yeah. is good for the economy, even though it maybe contradicts the influence on the natural world or the health and the well-being of our society. These are some of the, you know, you use the word bonkers, some of the... Um, the things that at least uh, they're mind boggling to me personally is, is how this is still the common practice, but great examples. Yeah. I mean, it's well, the, I, I have a feeling that, you know, now I've been working in the, in the healthcare space for a couple of years and I feel like every step I take into this world, it just becomes weirder, you know, <laughs> there's new, new doors opening that, that, you know, we, um, all of a sudden you understand the, the process of, uh, getting a drug on the market is, is an eight year process from from the sort of uh, research discovery so uh, the planning of a of, it's called a clinical trial and it has three major phases that it has to go through phase one is when it's proven to be um, feasible to deploy sort of the the treatment in a human being without having the result death um, <laughs> then you you can move on to the to the second phase um, but this eight-year project period uh, basically has a planning stage that is only a very short window of a couple of months where you're designing the entire process of first of all the eight year long study design but that is also the treatment that is getting approved to go into the market so if you do not have an eye for sustainability for true costs uh, for future regulation for instance a carbon tax then you actually risk developing a treatment that is not fit for the future that it's going to be deployable in. At the same time, you also have very long lock-in effect. So that means the decisions that are made in that very small window of design are incredibly hard to change. <laughs> they are incredibly hard to change further down the line. So we've also been working with clients on on implementing, for instance, uh, telemedicine in the design of clinical trials. So you do not make the patients dependent on traveling to a physical um, physician in order to do the treatment if it's not necessary. Um, so there, there's, there's a lot of really strange cases going on in the realm of health that, you know, when, when you sort of unfold how it happened, there's always sort of a, a logical or somewhat logical or at least uh, sort of there's always an explanation 
that makes some uh, some sort of sense within its own realm of meaning. But you know, I, I sometimes use the analogy that you know, if you popped an alien down here and told them about health insurance, you know, I'm surely that wouldn't make sense that you have so many stakeholders involved in in just ensuring health coverage. Uh, there, there are a few of those scenarios, no? I mean, <laughs> take the, you know, the outer space being or the time traveler that comes to the year 2022 as we're recording this, this interview. You know, there, there's a, a lot of things in our society that we do them because we, we kind of just inherited them as like, that's the way the system works. And it looks to me, it looks like regeneration. And I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, Web3 and blockchain with you here for a second as well. But regeneration or sustainability or corporate social responsibility, as we've called it before in this in this conversation, really, they have a lot to do with untangling the mess that has gotten us here. That is that is a mess that that continues to profit um, without accounting the natural world or the health and well-being of humans as the priority of what we're doing in the first place, right? And so that untangling process is is complex. I mean, most people don't even ever go deep deeply into it. it. You know, from just from listening to you, Fred, I can tell you've you've deeply sat with a lot of these topics and then looked at the com complication across multiple sectors. Um, that's, the, that's the spirit of an anthropologist, I suppose. That's <laughs> yeah, gone, gone, gone rogue into the entrepreneurial journey. So many of the firms you guys are working with are highly innovative with the use of technology to address environmental issues as well. Um, so can you share maybe with us some of the more interesting examples of companies that are using blockchain, Web3 technologies, tokenization, and the link to environmental issues? Um... I'm actually not a firm believer of blockchain. It's a, it, it's one of my favorite darlings to kill um, because I, I feel the uh, when I'm reviewing the technological landscape that's necessary to uh, to facilitate a green transition, blockchain is not one of the needed elements. Um, and uh, so so um, where where I do see uh sort of a, a, a tech utopian solution coming up i feel like machine learning and ai are probably the ones that are the most real and will deliver the most concrete value for the green transition uh, upfront so things like uh being able to uh, to have improved uh, prediction of extreme weather is going to be a main driver that it, uh, we will not have as catastrophic consequences of catastrophic weather events because we'll be able to predict them and and therefore prepare for them and evacuate in time so it doesn't become as costly uh, in terms of human uh, human capital and human suffering uh, carbon emissions and and dollar cost um, so that's one area then um, I'm seeing a huge potential uh, in uh, um, in land use technology, where um, basically regenerative agriculture is sort of a, a huge passion of mine, and and something I find really interesting that a lot of the API production in the world, so APIs, the active pharmaceutical in ingredient or the uh, active product ingredient in a drug. So when, when you produce the API, you usually have a land use associated to it, then <clears throat> you're taking a certain crop and you're converting it in, into a drug. Typically, uh, and I mean, you produce insulin through precision fermentation. So you, you take a bunch of sugar and then you convert it. Mm. Um, 
and I do see um, robotics and um, image analysis being a very powerful lever to be able to have more uh, regenerative agricultural practices because the way we have agriculture today is driven by the mechanization um, and what's called the green revolution in agriculture. It's not green at all. It's it's about um, synthetic fertilizers and uh, and huge tractors in, in agriculture. But um, that that's an area where I see significant potential for uh, for growth. And then the um, the use of uh, artificial intelligence uh, to help balance the electricity grid when we have renewable uh, energy production and having sort of um, a grid that is balanced by uh, a, a sort of um, more centralized AI that can switch things on and off and distribute the load um, accordingly because we won't have the same base load. You know, I, I think those are more sort of uh, real technologies where <clears throat> I'm, I'm seeing a lot of hype around blockchain, but I have yet to see a really convincing case where I can say, you know, hands down, this is a great driver for a sustainable transition. I, I think quite often it's, uh, it's an element that adds a great marketing value but uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we do a lot of things that are trust based, and we are used to having third parties that uh, that the two remaining parties trust in, and and that works okay. It's inefficient, you could say. Oftentimes, it inefficient. It's inefficient, but digitalization is removing a lot of these inefficiencies, and and you know I, I usually say that blockchain is I, I see it more as a as a solution without a proper problem to solve. Well, all right, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna totally um, just appreciate your answer for for right now uh, because I want to ask you um, another question, and that is about you know one of your most surprising challenges that you had to overcome working in in this sector of innovation, green innovation, and um, what you've been going through. I think it's it's surprising um, how many th how many things need to uh, coincidentally be coordinated for great business to happen. So I've seen so many examples where uh, the business case was there, the will to drive sustainable change was there, the availability of all of the necessary elements to cook the goulash were there but no one was cooking it you know and I've, I've just seen countless examples of this where um I, I think that has fascinated me quite a lot that we sort of have this idea that corporate entities are incredibly efficient and i mean they are they're they're really uh, great organizations for optimizing for profitability but but taking that into account doesn't mean that they're foolproof that they cannot make no wrongs and 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 that that has really surprised me that even though you've had something that has made internal logic within the sort of frame of reference of optimizing for profitability, it still hasn't happened. Even though the business case has been great, it has had a great return on investment. It has, you know, all, all of the sort of elements that were supposed to be there to facilitate that sort of business decision, it still hasn't happened. I, I find that to be quite sort of uh, baffling, but but also illustrating that Humans are inherently qu quite stupid, 
but we do tell ourselves all the time that we're really smart and and you know there there's sort of there's um uh some contradiction in the way that we're inhabiting it that you know we 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 keep telling ourselves that we should be smarter than this and you know I'm uh I'm somewhat skeptical towards that because you know we've we we've done a lot of uh, of fuckery in the in the time of uh, of our species and you know i i don't think history is really showcasing that humans at large are uh, very holistically thinking or very uh, um intelligent in sort of a societal sense of the word you know we're we're great at progressing things and developing things within its own sort of circles but we're we're also quite dismissive of everything that doesn't fit into our own biases and and that also happens with businesses and that yeah. has surprised me a lot yeah that's a super interesting point you're bringing up you know we we mentioned earlier in this episode the like outer space alien landing and being like what what are you guys doing here uh there's a lot of contradictions and untapped potential but it's it's similar maybe if we were to send someone from 200 years in the future back to this time um and as you said we have this this interesting perspective as humans that we think we're the apex predator on the planet but at the same time we're destroying our own playground and each other and history tells us that but we we somehow don't fully take uh full ownership uh into that right looking backward i mean reconciliation is something that largely still has to happen about a lot of historic events on the planet um th across all cultural groups you know um and then towards the natural world and then reconciling it into a pathway forward where um we we actually make holistic and and intelligent choices that that take our role as i would say ecosystem stewards much more serious than just as this uh, quotation marks apex predator yeah. that can destroy yeah, no, I, I, the, i think the steward the the steward metaphor is really powerful because it's also kind of like you know you you really have to ask yourself are we really that smart when we believe in something called countries and something called money you know it, it's just it, it's really make believe and it, every time we invest that belief into it, it it becomes more powerful and therefore it's part of our reality but you know if if you took someone who didn't have these preconceptions and just said this is how we've designed to run the world uh, this is what we decided um then then it wouldn't make any sense um and And that's a natural consequence of of the passing of time and and the chaotic organization of the world that you know it is not centrally governed, uh, and I'm not suggesting that we should have a new world order or something like that. But uh, I I just think that this is a consequence of of a very long uh, row of decisions that have been made through thousands of years, thousands of years, kind of like an evolution where you can say it's not a genetic evolution, but it is an uh, I. So if you could call it an evolution of ideas that has sort of brought us to this place where this is the reality that we live in, where we have decided that money is something that exists, that we're ascribing value so we can make ex exchanges. We have decided that countries exist so that we can have boundaries and we can group and cluster people into convenient uh, clusters. We, we have uh, decided that we have individual identities rather than group identities you know there, there's there's a lot of things when when you start questioning them as, as also as an academic it it, it really becomes uh, 
some quite provocative answers that come out of those abstract reflections, right? And that, that's something uh, we do a lot in anthropology as well, um, where, you know, it, it, it's, it's always a little bit confusing to have conversations with anthropologists because they basically agree on nothing and everything at, at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, or... You know, not to fully trail off into a, a philosophy exchange here, but I'm, I'm enjoying it. And, and so, you know, you, you could also make that argument. Imagine a group of kids didn't go through a classical schooling system, but were just told, this is how the world works. What do you guys think? And most likely they would challenge it and say, hey, why don't we just play the game differently? And you said something very interesting there that, you know, countries I can maybe um, fathom from some perspective that we believe in countries because we believe they give us safety. Now, I'm not saying that's true, but I think that's what, what we, we largely believe. Um, money is, is similar, but then if you look at it, really what we're talking about is the distribution of power uh, and the power to, you know... Um, well, innocently maybe help each other and steward uh, the world for each other. But as you said, there's a big contradiction there because our generation in the 21st century here um, can't look away anymore from how this is destroying the environment around us and in us. I mean, the, the, the word burnout was mentioned very early in this episode, um, and it's a very common phenomena for, for young people in business. And so something about the way that we tap into power, that we tap, that we, we govern the, the world through countries and, and, uh, and, and, and money will, will have to change. I think that prediction is pretty easy to make. Um, and personally, because you mentioned the new world order, but personally, I think there's something very interesting to say about quite the opposite of a centralized government, but a healthy bioregions that you, you said this word earlier too, that are resilient and that are able to communicate with other healthy bioregions, right? Um, happy to hear it's, more it's, of your thoughts on that, Fred. It's, but the, it's the basic I, idea of anarchism, yeah. right? That there's some, the power of self-organization and mutual aid is, mm -hmm. those are the key principles in, in, in anarchistic aid, yes. theory. So, yeah, I mean, that... that, that, uh, that Let that me form a question out of it. My <laughs> question would be, just also to, to wrap this beautiful episode, my question would be, what is your advice to young people joining these conversations and these industries? Uh, you know, young people and the, the, the future opportunities in green technology and in what we just called kind of the evolution from sustainability into regeneration. Um, I would say two key principles would be to uh, join a global and growing organization and uh, position yourself in a group of people that are change agents and uh, learn from mentors um, that can help you climb that ladder of influence fast. Uh, I, I think that's kind of if you want to drive change in the world you need to join a really big machinery. Um, that's the that's the path where I see the highest likelihood that you're going to get some really big levers to pull. Um, it's not the most sexy path. It's not the, the rock star path. It's not the sexy startup path, but it is the path where uh, I've seen people with the highest degree of consistency pull uh, very large levers and punch above their weight. Thank you so much for your time, Fred. Thank you for the, the musings of anthropology and philosophy. Meanwhile, also bringing always back down to the concrete examples. Um, yeah, Cheers. thank you so much. It was, uh, for it was a lot of fun time. being here. Thanks for having me.